You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Philippians chapter 4. Let's bow our heads before we begin this morning. Father, we confess to you that we are in need of your spirit and of your grace to teach us this morning. We thank you that we have your word and the revelation of you and your son and your will to us in it. We ask now that as we study this text that our eyes would be opened and our hearts would be laid bare before you, that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit and that your word would have its way amongst our priorities and in our heart, that you might purge us from sin and, and uh, purify us as a people and equip us for service. We ask now your blessing upon this time and your help in understanding your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wish that there were in Philippians chapter 4 a chapter division between verse 9 and verse 10. I wish that verse 9 was the end of chapter 4 and verse 10 was the beginning of chapter 5. I wish that for a couple of different reasons. First, because then I could get up here and say, everybody turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 5, and it would actually make us feel like we're making some progress through this book at some sort of a respectable pace. But second, because there is a major subject division in the middle of chapter 4, and verse 10 begins the last and final major section of the book of Philippians. And in fact, verse 10 begins the section which I think is one of the main reasons why Paul wrote this letter. So as we begin verse 10, it's the beginning of a new year, and so we begin a brand new subject in the book of Philippians, and you're going to see what that is this morning. I was thinking this last week, since we're on the subject of the new year, and we're on the subject because I just brought it up. I was thinking this last week, at the beginning of 2009, it is now nine years, almost a full decade, since we were all worried about Y2K. Remember that? Since we thought our banks were going to shut down, our money would be no good, and electricity would turn off, and we'd be overrun by hordes of barbarians who weren't handcuffed to modern technology. We all thought that that. And now here we are, nine years older. At least you're nine years older. I'm not that much older than I was back then. But now we're nine years older, nine years past that, almost a decade. That's hard to believe, isn't it? You've aged almost a decade since then. You depressed yet? So we are beginning a new subject now, almost a decade after 2000. Beginning of a new year, beginning of a new subject, not the beginning of a new book. We're almost done with Philippians. We can see the end here. Actually, I thought of an illustration. It's just another little, um, somewhat of an aside. I thought of an illustration this morning that characterizes Dave's teaching, Jess's teaching, and my teaching. And this is what it's like. It's kind of like walking toward a faraway mountain, looking through a pair of binoculars. It looks really close. The end does. The goal But you know you've got so far to walk, even though you can see the end, you know you've got so far to walk. 
That's the way it is in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to take a few weeks that may turn into months, but a few weeks at least to discuss this subject that Paul brings up, the subject of contentment. And it's going to take a little while because I've been exercised in my own spirit for several months about the subject of contentment, and I've been looking forward to addressing this issue. So, beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul starts the final section of the book of Philippians. This is primarily the reason I think he wrote the letter. He was, he's saving this to, to the last. And lest you feel like we're sort of diving or, or sailing in uncharted waters, I do want to give you a little bit of a sneak peek about what's ahead in this final section and kind of give you an overview. So here's sort of the overview of where we're going in the next couple of weeks. First, I need to remind you of a historical detail that I mentioned at the beginning of Philippians and have alluded to a couple of times since. But since it's been 18 months since we started the book of Philippians, I think that there's a strong possibility that you may not remember this one little detail. And it is this. Before Paul wrote the book of Philippians, somebody arrived, and you remember his name is Epaphroditus, he arrived in Rome with a gift, a monetary gift for Paul from the church at Philippi. And that is primarily what the Apostle Paul is getting at as he writes this letter. He has been waiting until the end, and then you get to this final section, and verse 10 through 20 is one large thank you for your gift. It's a thank you letter. And Paul saves that for the last. And listen, it's not because he's tacking it on sort of as a getting to the end and thinking, oh yeah, by the way, almost forgot, thanks for the gift. It's not that at all. I think he's actually purposefully saving this for the end for this reason. He doesn't want to end the letter with a long theological treatise on false teachers or warnings about false teachers like he gave us in chapter 3. He doesn't want to end the book of Philippians with details about sanctification, about using your mind and rejoicing in the Lord and not worrying. He wants to end the book with what I think is probably the most personal the most heartfelt, the most gracious section of the entire epistle. This is where you get a glimpse at the Apostle Paul. And of all of the passages in all of the Bible, I think the ones that are the most instructive and the most enjoyable are those passages where we get a glimpse at the heart of the writer. And that's what we have at the end of the book of Philippians. We get a rare, one of those rare glimpses into the heart of the Apostle Paul in what is a very personal, very heartfelt, very gracious section of the letter. This is a very personal letter, but of the entire letter, this is the most personal section. And here you have the Apostle Paul thanking them for the gift that they had sent by the hand of Epaphroditus. Now, how do we know that the gift came from the hand of Epaphroditus? You look back in chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, the Apostle Paul says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. He has been your minister to my need, a faithful messenger on your behalf. Then you look at chapter 4. Verse 18, probably just across the page or on the same page in your Bible, he says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So here's sort of the outline for the last section of the book, keeping in mind that the Apostle Paul is thanking them for their gift. You see at the beginning of verse 10, he's actually going to address two main subjects. The first, from 10 to verse 14, He talks about the subject of contentment. And second, from verse 15 all the way to verse 20, Paul addresses the subject of giving and giving of our finances to the Lord. Contentment and giving. Very personal issues. They are related in Paul's mind. In fact, the discussion of giving raises the issue of contentment for the Apostle Paul. And the subject of contentment is sort of a rabbit trail off of the subject of giving. 
So he begins in verse 10, and you can see it there. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my afflictions. So you see how the Apostle Paul begins? Thanking them for their gift. And then he sort of gets on a rabbit trail. And with a clarification and a qualification and sort of a disclaimer of sorts, he wants them to understand why he's thanking them and what the gift meant to them. And that sends the Apostle Paul off on this discussion of contentment. So we're going to be looking at the subject of contentment briefly today, but in far more depth next week. And then eventually we're going to get to the subject of giving. Sometimes receiving a gift, and this, this, by the way, I think is one of the main things we're going to learn today. Sometimes receiving a gift is a very difficult thing to do. Isn't it? You can all agree with that? I think we've probably all been at a place in our lives at one time or another when we have needed the support, financial or otherwise, of somebody else. We have needed a place to stay. We have needed food. We have needed clothing, we have needed some sort of provision or a job, and sometimes receiving a gift from somebody is one of the most pride-crushing and difficult things to do. And I think that it is because there is something in us that knows if I receive this gift, and they know that I have a need, and I know that I have a need, to receive the gift is to admit the need, and to admit the need is to admit something bad about myself, right? There's something in our minds, or at least in our hearts, and maybe it's pride, maybe it's a form of pride, maybe pride is underneath of it, but it's something else. There's something in our hearts and minds that does not enjoy receiving a gift from somebody else when it is given to fill a need, because it is an admission of a lack or of a need on our behalf. And sometimes that can be very difficult. Um, when Deidre and I first got married, I mentioned this, we were... We, couldn't, we weren't even called poor then. We actually, poor was a goal for us. One day we'll be poor. That was, uh, that was what we were striving for. And there was a lot of friends that we had who stepped up and provided jobs. They provided work. Sometimes they provided food. Sometimes they provided clothing through hand-me-downs. And we were grateful for everything we got. But we always hoped that someday we would be at a position where we would be able to pass that on to somebody else. And it was always very difficult to, to give or to receive a gift from somebody and now that I'm able, by God's grace, to be able to give gifts to other people, sometimes I find that people don't always receive your gifts the way that you want to give them. Because it's difficult. There's something in this it's difficult. Well, here in verse 10 and verse 11, actually this whole passage, we get a lesson on how to receive a gift. Because Paul received a gift from the church at Philippi, and it was something that was substantial. It was something that filled a need that he knew that he had, that they knew that he had, and they gave it for the purpose of filling that need and meeting Paul's need. And here we get to a glimpse at the Apostle Paul to see how he received it. Now, here's one of the problems with this passage. This is the last thing by way of overview. Here's one of the problems with the passage. Sometimes the Apostle Paul is very difficult to outline his thinking on a, in a subject. Especially when he does what he does here at the end of Philippians chapter 4, which is this. He starts on a subject, which brings up something else, and that kind of creates a rabbit trail, which he is on long enough to create a whole other subject, and then he returns back to his original subject. So you actually have the beginning of a subject, a rabbit trail, which is its own subject, and then a return back to the original subject that he started, and that becomes actually the main subject. So it's very difficult to outline. So I've done my best. Here I offer it to you. Two things if you're taking notes. 
The first one is this gift that the Apostle Paul received from them. This gift was an occasion of great joy, an occasion of great joy. And we see that in verse 10. In verse 11, we see that even though it was an occasion for joy, it was not the source of Paul's contentment. And that's what actually brings us into the subject of contentment beginning at verse 11. It was an occasion, not the source, an occasion for rejoicing, but it was not the source of his contentment. It did not produce in him contentment. So look at verse 10 again. But I have rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 10, we see that the Apostle Paul received this gift from them and it was an occasion for great joy. I rejoiced greatly. And he's referring to the point at which the messenger from Philippi, Epaphroditus, showed up in Rome and offered to Paul a gift from the church at Philippi to meet his needs. Paul says, I rejoiced greatly, but notice, not in the gift, not in the messenger, not in the sacrifice, but what? I rejoiced in the Lord. It was the Lord that was the source of Paul's rejoicing, the ground of his rejoicing. It was the Lord that was the object of Paul's rejoicing and not the gift itself. Sometimes it is difficult when we receive a gift to make sure that we're receiving the gift and the joy that it brings is not a joy over the gift itself, but over something else, that it's actually a joy in the Lord. So you receive something from somebody else. Oftentimes we confuse rejoicing over the gift with rejoicing in the Lord. And we think that because the gift caused us joy, that therefore it's a holy joy and we're actually joyful in the Lord. But that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes the gift itself is the occasion and is the object and is the ground of our rejoicing. And when that happens, guess what? We miss the giver. And we actually rejoice in the gift itself and we miss the blessing of receiving the provision of the giver himself, be it God through somebody else or God directly through something. Let me illustrate it. Sometimes I have to ask myself the question, when I receive something that is a provision, maybe it's just a monthly paycheck. I receive something that is a provision. I receive something that's going to um, create joy or fill a need. Maybe you got a Christmas bonus this year. Or maybe if you own your own business, you wrote yourself a Christmas bonus this year. Some of you can do that. That's good. It's good to receive that. When you receive the Christmas bonus, I, or any time I receive a gift, I have to always ask myself in my mind, sometimes, I don't always do this, but I try to always do this, am I rejoicing in the gift? Or am I rejoicing in something other than the gift, the giver of the gift, and the God who has provided this for me? Difficult question to answer? It's easier if you break the same question down this way and ask, your, ask it this way. If I were not to have received this, would I still be able to rejoice? If this had never come, if this had never been given to me, if this had never been provided for me, would I be content without it? If the answer to that question is no, then it is not the Lord that is the source of your rejoicing. It's actually your circumstances or the gift itself. You catch that? So I asked myself the question, would I be content without this? Or does this thing make me happy? Does this thing create joy? If this thing creates joy, and I would not be content or happy without it, then it's not the Lord I'm rejoicing in. It's not He who is the cause and the ground and the object of my joy, but it is something. 
And when something becomes the object of my joy, then I miss the one who has given it to me. But when the Lord is the object of our joy in receiving a gift, then we get both the Lord and the gift. It's a double blessing. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord when he had received it from Epaphroditus. He says, now at last you have revived your concern for me. So Paul says, I rejoice now at last. And there's only one way that that phrase in the Greek can be taken, and that is this. Now after this long period of time, you have revived your concern for me. It speaks of the fact that there had been a break, a long period of time that elapsed between the Philippians' last gift to Paul and this one that they sent at the hand of Epaphroditus. Now at last you have revived your concern for me. And the word revived, I think, is a very interesting word. It's only used once in all of the New Testament. It's used outside the New Testament in other Greek literature. The word revived was used of a bush or of a plant shooting forth fresh shoots or flowers in the spring. A couple years ago, I bought a thornless blackberry bush. I was not interested in a blackberry bush that had thorns on it. I wanted a thornless blackberry bush. So I went down and I bought one. And one of the questions that I asked the lady at the nursery was, do I need to buy more than one plant for this bush to reproduce and produce fruit? She said, no. I said, do I need to buy more than one plant in order for this to spread? I want a whole patch of blackberries after a while. And so do I need to buy more than one to sort of get that started? She said, no, it's very prolific. It'll reproduce itself. It'll send up uh, fresh shoots every year. And this thing only had like three shoots on it when I bought it. So I only bought one plant because I'm an evangelical and I'm cheap. And I figured if I can get away with buying one and it's going to spread and multiply anyway, I'd rather wait, save the ten bucks, Wait a couple of years before I get berries. And uh, so that's what I did. I bought one plant. And I tied it up in the fall. It had two, three uh, branches on it. And she explained to me, you have to prune them aggressively. Because every year you'll have three different types of shoots on it. You'll have the brand new shoots that are just coming up out of the ground. Then the next year those brand new shoots will produce fruit. And then the following year they're dead. So you've got to prune off all the dead ones. And you've got to keep track of which ones are producing fruit and which ones are not producing fruit and which ones are dead. So I did that. I, I pruned it back. I got it all tied up to my post in my garden. And then last winter hit. And last winter was a nightmare. And it just stripped it right down off of the post. And I went out there in the spring and it looked just as dead as custard's horse. It was, it was dead, dead. There was no signs of life in it. And I thought, great. Now, ten bucks down the drain. If I'd have bought two plants, at least I would have had a, and all this stuff went through my mind because I'm cheap. So, I thought I was done for as far as the plant was concerned. And then guess what? Spring came, the sun came out, and it shot forth shoots. Brand new shoots. And not just a few, but dozens. These things were 12 to 15 feet long, took over a quarter of my garden. Last fall I had to cut them back to 6 feet, and I stood them all up, and they look like they're doing good, even in spite of the winter that we're having. It still looks like they're doing good. That is the imagery that the Apostle Paul uses. Now, for a period of time, it looks... From the outward perspective, like there was no concern, like there was no love, like there was no grace of you Philippians toward me. But all along, the concern was there. And that's what he gets at in the last half of this verse. All along, the concern was there. But now, after a period of time, you revived like a plant putting forth its shoots in the spring. You revived your concern for me. They had a thoughtful concern for the Apostle Paul, a love for him. He knew that. And this gift to him was evidence of their concern for him. Now, at this point, you and I might ask a couple of questions. And the Apostle Paul now begins to sort of clarify his thanksgiving because he knows that his words could be used against him. In fact, his words could be twisted and spun in the worst possible light. Now, you may ask, what worst possible light could anybody understand that expression of thanksgiving? 
Somebody might misunderstand it in two ways. First, somebody could say, Paul, you've just received a gift. You've just received money. You've just received earthly treasure. And this caused you joy? What type of a character defect is it that mere earthly treasures could cause that kind of rejoicing and thankfulness? After all, Paul, your treasure is where your heart is. And man, if just giving you treasure produces that kind of response in your heart, that kind of joy and thanksgiving and gratitude and rejoicing in the Lord, what kind of an individual must you be that mere earthly treasures that can produce that in your heart? Is that a legitimate criticism? I think it's a legitimate question. And the Apostle Paul answers it in his discussion on contentment. Just the short answer for now is, no, it wasn't a character defect in Paul. And no, there was nothing wrong with what they gave to him being an occasion, not the source, but an occasion for his rejoicing. But the second way that somebody could misunderstand what the Apostle Paul was saying was to say to the Apostle Paul, not only is this a character defect, but... Paul, are you reproving us in some way? Do you catch that? Now at last. Now at last you've revived your concern for me. Almost as if to say, finally. Finally. I mean, a long time has come and now at last, finally, after all these months, you finally sent a gift to me. Somebody could take it that way, couldn't they? Almost as if the Apostle Paul is suggesting, look, this should have come earlier. And... It is because of some defect with you that you didn't send this earlier. And I want you to know that I have a need and my need has been consistent and persistent for all these months. And you finally stepped up to the plate and met my need and almost to suggest by implication, send me a little bit more. Somebody could misunderstand it that way. So Paul clarifies it. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Look, he wants them to understand something. He understood that their lack of sending a gift did not evidence a lack of concern. The presence of the gift and the sending of the gift was evidence of their love and concern. But the Apostle Paul says, I know that indeed you were concerned before. Just because you hadn't sent a gift doesn't mean you weren't concerned. He believed the best about them and he was right. Just because they hadn't sent a gift didn't mean that they didn't love him. Didn't mean that they weren't praying for them. Didn't him. Didn't mean that they didn't care for him or were concerned about him. It didn't mean that they didn't know about his need. And he wants them to know that. That's why the imagery of the revival of the plant is so is so vivid here. My blackberry plant had life in it. It looked lifeless. It looked dead. And it did for a whole winter. It looked hopeless. But what was true about the plant? There was life there. And lots of life there. Enough life there to put out all those shoots that would cause me problems the next fall. There was all kinds of life there. And that's the imagery that the Apostle Paul uses. And that's what he's saying. Just because you didn't send a gift, don't think that I didn't think you were concerned. I know you were. And then second, he wants them to understand that he knew the reason they didn't send a gift was because they lacked the opportunity. Now, you know me well enough to know that in my mind, I'm very curious and I want to know, what was it that caused the lack of opportunity? Why did they lack opportunity? There were some circumstances, something was going on in Philippi with Paul between them in some way that they lacked an opportunity to show his cons- their concern by sending him a gift. And the implication is that they knew of his need. And the implication is that they lacked the opportunity to demonstrate their concern for his need and to give a gift to supply his need. So what was going on in the background at the time that may have 
caused a lack of opportunity? What circumstances were prevailing? Well, let me suggest a few. And these have been suggested by other commentators. I didn't come up with this off the top of my, my tiny brain. Let me suggest a few. It could be possible that the church, number one, in Philippi, did not have somebody to send with the gift. Now, eventually it came at the hands of Epaphroditus. But keep in mind, it's two weeks journey at least to Rome, two weeks journey back. And if they're going to send a gift that size, they're going to send it to the hands of somebody who can take a month off from work or a month away from his family or a month away from his other responsibilities and be able to go to Paul and spend at least a little bit of time there ministering to him. Not just run, drop it off, turn around and run right back. So they had to find somebody who was dependable, trustworthy, who had the giftedness and the calling to serve Paul well, that they could send this gift with, who also was free to take it and take the time off from whatever responsibilities he had in Philippi. That's a possibility. It could be also that not just it was a lack of personnel, but it was a lack of money itself. Do you remember when we were in the book of Acts, we saw that there was a famine in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and Paul was traveling through the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, taking up an offering from some of the Macedonian churches like Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica, in order to bring that offering back when he arrived after his third missionary journey, to give it to the saints that were in Jerusalem because there was a famine in the land. And that famine was prophesied by Agabus way back in Acts chapter 11. Do you remember that? That famine had arrived. It's possible that by this time that that famine and the financial difficulties had spread not just from Palestine and Jerusalem, but to all of the churches in the Roman Empire, and that they all lacked that type of provision. So not the lack of opportunity was because they lacked the materials themselves. It's also possible, this is the third possibility, that Paul didn't need the supply. He didn't need the offering. And the churches knew that he didn't need the offering, and, and so they just lacked opportunity to show their support by giving him an offering, and his needs were met. I, I don't necessarily buy that one, because I think that this is a real need that was met that Paul had, that they stepped up to the plate and filled. Otherwise, kind of the whole tech context doesn't mean anything. There's a fourth possibility, and this one I think is, this one I think is really good, and this is actually what I think was more likely the case. The fourth possibility is that the Apostle Paul refused financial support from the church. Now, why would he do that? Remember the context, the historical context. The Apostle Paul is in Rome. He is on trial for his life. He has three accusations against him. Two of them are capital offenses in the Roman system. All of those, any of one of those offenses could land Paul on the chopping block and he could lose his head. So he is awaiting his trial. He has appealed, appealed to Nero. Nero, that is Caesar, the Caesar who is Nero, is going to hear his case. And so while he is waiting for his trial, I think, and some commentators agree with this, that in all likelihood, the Apostle Paul sent word out and said, don't send any money. Now, why would he do that? He had needs like rent, and he was in his own rented quarters at the end of the book of Acts, and was there for two years. Why would the Apostle Paul say to the churches, don't supply my needs, don't send me money? Well, if you read through the New Testament, particularly the Thessalonian epistles and the Corinthian epistles, what you find is that when churches sent Paul offerings and money, the enemies of the Apostle Paul used those offerings as a ground to slander him. And you see this in Thessalonians. You see it in Corinthians where they said he's a charlatan. He just comes from city to city. He gets you all whipped up in an emotional fervor. He sells you this business about a cross and a crucified Messiah and salvation. Asks for your money. You give him your money. And then, boom, he's off to the next city. And all he does is go around from city to city getting rich off of you gullible Christians. And he answers those objections in Corinthians. And he answers or addresses them in the epistles to the Thessalonians. So I think it's entirely possible that while the Apostle Paul is on trial for his life, 
he would say to the churches, no offerings. Why? No fodder for the enemies. I don't want anybody to be able to raise in court the objection that he has been getting rich at the hands of other Christians. I think that's most likely what happened. There's a fifth possibility, and that is simply they couldn't find Paul. Right? Is he in Caesarea? Is he in Jerusalem? He got on a ship. How long ago was that? A year and a half ago? It was in the fall. Shipwreck on Malta. Then in the spring, he's off to Rome. Where is Paul? What is his circumstance? They can't just look him up online. They can't email him. They can't call him. It would take weeks for news to get to them. And I think that in all likelihood, that's what was going on. Months had gone by. Perhaps more than a year had gone by before the Philippian church heard of where Paul was at and what Paul was doing and what his needs were. And so they simply lacked the opportunity to send it. Whatever the case, whatever the reason is, Paul wanted them to understand, I know it's because you lacked opportunity, not because you lacked love for me. So this gift that they sent was an occasion of great joy. It wasn't the source of his joy. His joy was in the Lord. This was simply the occasion that gave Paul the opportunity to rejoice in Christ at their wonderful, gracious provision. Second, we get to this in verse 11, the gift that they sent was not the source of his contentment. It wasn't the source of his contentment. Paul says, I'm not saying these things out of any sense of want. And the word, kind of an old English word, I wish my new American standard wouldn't uh, translate it that way. But it's a word that means, in the Greek, it means a lack or poverty or a need. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm rejoicing, not because a need has been met. I'm not saying these things out of any sense of need. I'm not speaking out of want. It's not that I have another need that I need you to fulfill, and I'm trying to imply that you need to fill it. He wants them to understand that his reason for rejoicing is not that a need has been met, although a need had been met. His reason for rejoicing was not that his circumstances had changed, although his circumstances had changed, and for the better. And he wanted them to know that the reason he's rejoicing is not in the gift itself. It goes beyond that. So Paul says, I'm not saying this from a sense of want, because I want you to understand, I have learned to be content. And this is the... This is the gold verse here. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. This is the heart of it. Paul was able to say, I am able to be content because I have learned contentment. And since I have learned to be content, it is because of that that I can honestly rejoice in the Lord for your provision and not in the gift itself. I think that the Apostle Paul, I may be wrong, but I think that the Apostle Paul's response to the Philippians would have been the same even had they not sent a financial gift. Had they sent an encouragement card that said, Paul, we love you, we're concerned, we're praying that God would meet your needs, we have no ability to do so at the time, but we're asking that God will do that, be cheerful, we love you. We're keeping you in our thoughts and in our prayers. Had they just sent that letter and Paul had received it, I think he would have responded the same way. Why? Because gift or no gift, Paul was content. I am able to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. So he was able to be rejoicing not in the circumstances that had changed, but in the Lord and in the Lord because of the Philippians' gift toward Paul for his needs. I'm able to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself, that is why, Paul says, I am able to rejoice in the Lord. See, nobody could read these verses and walk away with an image of the Apostle Paul sitting in Rome, wringing his hands, worried about next month's rent. 
You don't get that image, do you? No, instead what you get is the image of somebody who is able to say, rent or no rent, provision or no provision, lack or no lack, I'm content in the Lord and in His disposal of all things and in all that He determines to provide for me. Now this just introduces us to the subject of Christian contentment. We're going to unpack it next week in far more detail. We're going to look at what contentment is and what contentment is not. It's an admirable virtue, isn't it? I mean, if you think through your, through your life to the people that you know, and there are probably a few that stand out that you can say, that individual is truly content. Whatever comes to that individual, I never hear a word of complaint from them. Maybe I'm not, it's because I'm not married to them. Maybe it's because I'm not their child. But never in all of the time that I've spent with that individual have I ever heard a discouraging or complaining word from them. And God has brought to them lack and want and poverty and affliction and suffering and bad things and good things and rejoicing. This person has gone through and enjoyed all of the experiences that life has to offer. And I've never once heard a complaint. I know a few people like that. And I can think of them. And I say to them, that is an admirable virtue. I want contentment. And I hope that you won't be content until you're content. I hope that there's something in you that says, I want that virtue. It's an admirable virtue, but listen, it's an elusive virtue. Contentment is elusive for this reason. It is because we think that we get contentment a certain way. And that's not at all how you get it. It's the opposite of what you have in your mind. You probably have in your mind, contentment comes when I get this, or when I do this, or when I feel this. And that's not contentment at all. You get contentment the opposite of how you normally would think that you get contentment. But we'll have to save that for next week. And we'll sort of unpack what contentment is. Because when we start describing it, all of a sudden, all these questions come up in my mind. Well, what about this? And can I do that? And should I have this? And we'll address all of those subjects, but I want to paint for you a picture of this jewel of Christian contentment. So here's what we're going to end with today. Here's the main point of the Apostle Paul in verses 10 and in verse 11. He rejoices in them, in the Lord, over their gift to them. It was an occasion of joy for Paul, but not the source of his contentment. He would be content with or without the gift. It was fine by him. But what I want you to notice with the Apostle Paul is that he was not vexed and he wasn't worried and he wasn't anxious and he wasn't discontent. He wasn't unhappy. He wasn't unjoyful before the gift arrived from Philippi at the hands of Epaphroditus. He wasn't unhappy and he wasn't uncontent and he wasn't unjoyful. In fact, if anything, the Apostle Paul was able to be joyful and content and happy with or without the gift. And when the gift arrived, this is what I find remarkable, Paul's rejoicing is completely other-centered. Look at verse 18. I think it's verse 18. No, verse 17. This is when he's talking about the gift and not necessarily contentment, but he says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That is just stunning. That is just stunning. Paul says, I'm not after the gift. And the gift is not necessarily the biggest blessing to me. You know what the biggest blessing was in the mind of the Apostle Paul? What God's going to do for you and to you and through you because you were generous enough to give the gift. 
That's what was a big blessing. Remember back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read how we ought to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that we ought to look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others, considering the interests of others more important than ourselves. Is it possible, listen, is it possible to receive a gift from somebody and in receiving the gift from somebody to be more concerned about what they get out of giving the gift than out of what you receive in receiving the gift? To rejoice at having received something, not because a need was met, not because a circumstance has changed, not because provision has been given, but to receive a gift and to be more concerned about what God's going to do for that individual and to say to themselves, it's it's not the gift. What really warms my heart, what really excites me, is the profit that you get for giving the gift. That is others-centered, not giving, but others-centered receiving. Is it possible to receive a gift and to rejoice more over what the other person gets out of it than what you get out of it? It certainly is possible. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He is rejoicing not because a need has been met. He is rejoicing because of what God was going to do in the Philippians and through the Philippians and for the Philippians because of their generosity. Their generosity would be returned upon them. Paul knew that and he said, I'm so glad for the blessing that's coming your way for what is given to your account, for the reward that you're going to receive. That is what created the rejoicing and the joy. That's the attitude, and that's the heart of somebody who can receive a gift for the sake of others. So is it difficult to receive a gift? Sometimes it is, but one of the keys of being able to receive a gift well is to be able to receive a gift for somebody else's sake. And to understand, they're probably going to get more of a blessing for giving this gift than I am going to get in receiving the gift, and that causes me great joy. But you can only have that heart, and you can only have that attitude, you can only have that mindset if you're content. Contentment has to be there. If you do not have contentment, then every gift you receive is received with some measure, however small, of selfishness. If you do not have contentment, every gift you receive is received with some measure of selfishness. Because in the end... You're going to be grateful for the gift, and you're not going to be thinking of others when you receive their gift. Isn't this backwards? Now you understand what the Lord meant when He says, more blessed to give than to receive. Paul understood that. He believed that. He knew that the Philippians' blessing was going to be greater than his, and he was able to rejoice in the Lord at the occasion of their gift for what God was going to do to them, completely for their sake, looking out for their interests, not his own. But what enabled him to do that was contentment. But it all comes back to that hard attitude of contentment. If you don't have that, then every time you receive something, it's selfish. In some way and in some measure, it's selfish and self-centered. So we've got to understand what contentment is. We'll dive into that next week and we'll look at this Christian grace of contentment. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do rejoice in your provision for us. We thank you, God, that... Not only can we know this book, but this book seems to know us. And it speaks to our deepest needs and it speaks to our deepest sins and the recesses of our heart. We thank you, God, that you through your word and your spirit are able to shine the light of truth upon the dark corners of our hearts and reveal in us things that we would never see apart from that. 
We pray that you would continue to do that in the weeks ahead and that as we commit these things to our minds and to our hearts, that you would be pleased to work them out in our lives by your grace and by your goodness. And may the fellowship of the Spirit and your grace and goodness go with us this day and all who believe in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.